Lost the weight upon my shoulder. Now it's easier to walk. I can see the road before me. I am not afraid to fall. Okay, welcome to the podcast today. Today we have Brittany Herman with us, and we're excited to have you. Hi, Brittany. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. Yeah, Lindsay will read um, Brittany's bio and then we'll get into your story. Yeah. Okay, Brittany Herman is a tax attorney working with nonprofit organizations. Brittany attended Tennessee Technological University for her undergraduate degree, Brigham Young University for law school, and Georgetown for her master's of law degree. In addition to helping nonprofits, she runs her own called We Will, a national nonprofit organization dedicated to sexual assault prevention, and survivor empowerment. She is a sexual assault survivor who founded We Will after Brittany completed or after she completed a research project during law school, which shows that we can prevent sexual assault through sexual education. Her study was published and has been read by over 3,000 individuals. She also authored a children's book for health education, which has been distributed to over 1,500 people in multiple languages. Brittany also serves as Miss Ohio Volunteer, a state title in the Miss Volunteer America program, a scholarship pageant focused on pushing women to be their best selves and serve their communities. She will compete for the title of Miss Volunteer America at the end of June. During her time off, she enjoys serving in church, playing her flute in professional orchestras, coaching high school swimming, bodybuilding, and spending time with her cute dog, Wilford. Awesome. So, yeah. That's super impressive. I know. You've done so much. Yeah. Yeah. We're really excited to dive into your story. So, yeah. Um, we usually like to start our interviews off. Is there any like a fun fact or story you could share with us to help us get to know you a little better? I would say one fun fact about myself is that I have moved over 10 times and lived in many, many different states. And so whenever anybody asks where I'm from, it's really difficult to answer that question. But I do feel like it shaped who I am as far as learning and growing and becoming more more of an outgoing person. I was really timid and shy as a child. So it definitely helped me learn and to grow. And, and now I know things about all sorts of different places across the United States. So it's really fun. Right. That's awesome. That's cool. So what are some of the states that you lived in? So I was born in Utah, and then we moved to Oregon, then Washington, then Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, Tennessee, Louisiana, and then Ohio. Oh, Oh, wow. wow. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That is awesome. Was it for, like, your parents' career that you moved around? or? Yeah, it was for my father's career. He Mm. um, doesn't work directly for the military, but his company contracts with the military. And so whatever the military needs built, that's kind of where we're moving to. Oh, nice. So where did you attend high school? I went in Texas and in Tennessee. Okay. Hmm. That's awesome. And so your parents live in Ohio now? Is that why you have the mis- No. Oh, you don't. No. Okay. So I actually, I, I completed my schooling at Georgetown and was looking at different places that I could live. And I knew when I was doing tax law that I wanted to work with nonprofit organizations specifically because that had become my passion. And I found out about this job in Ohio and I thought, okay, Columbus, Ohio, I've never been there before, but it sounds like an interesting enough place. And because my parents had 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 encouraged or really had us move so frequently, I knew that I could go anywhere and make a home. So that's why I decided to go there. Nice. Yeah. But you're in Utah now? Yes. So I am in Utah now. I work for a law firm out here and it's a lot of fun. Oh, cool. That's awesome. Yeah. It's a cool, yeah, I've only lived in two States, so I love (laughs) the idea of like just having that different perspective of different, every, everywhere has their own kind of culture or their own kind of feel all the different States. It does for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it helps me connect with more people because I kind of have an understanding of where people are coming from for sure. So, so I think that that's definitely helpful. That's cool. That sounds like that, I mean, obviously it's a big part of your childhood. Um, is there anything else that stands out in your childhood that, you know, is part of your story that you'd want to share kind of leading up to talking about your transitions in life? Yeah, I, I guess I would talk about the background of how my family grew up. So my dad didn't graduate from college until we were a little bit older. And so we were pretty poor growing up for a long time. 
Um, we would live with different family members and things like that, and it was it was really difficult. But one thing that I really appreciated was how much my parents emphasized the importance of hard work to us, and t- telling us that we could do anything, that we could become anything. And I think that that attitude really carried in through the rest of my life. When it was time to decide what I wanted to do with my life, I knew that even though I didn't have any role models in the legal field per se in my family or anything like that, I knew that I could pursue it, that I could do it. Um, same thing with starting the nonprofit. I think our my parents just teaching me about hard work gave me this kind of can-do attitude about life that I might not be able to do everything perfectly, but if I work hard enough, I will be able to do whatever I want to do. That's, That's really cool. cool. How many siblings did you have? I have four siblings. So I have two older sisters, they're twins, and then a little sister and a little brother. Oh, cool. Oh, fun. Yeah, I think that's so important that your hard work is huge because you can put that into anything, whether it's education or career or nonprofit or anything you put your heart to. So Yeah. Well, and also just that they encourage you to kind of follow your passion. Like, I feel like that's so cool because it's easy. I think it, it would be easy as parents or it could be to just kind of like have your kids follow what you've done, you know, but so mm-hmm. you, so I was curious about that. Like how, what did lead you to law then? Cause you didn't really have anyone, you know, a parent or anyone that was in that field. Yeah. I was led to law because of debate in high school. So I didn't, I wasn't on the debate team. I just took a government class my senior year and we had to do some debates during it. And I was like, oh, this is this is kind of fun. Like the research research aspect is fun. The speaking aspect is fun. I really loved, I don't know, being right and winning an argument. <laughs> that was hard to do with four siblings at home. Yeah. Um, and so that was a fun part of it too. And I didn't start college as a or as an English major. I act, or even with the plan to go into law, I started as a music major and was planning to play the flute my whole life, but just really made the decision kind of on a whim, like I'm going to change and do law because I really love the whole debate thing. And so then, yeah, getting into law school where I hadn't had any role models in law, I didn't know, I think, half as much as my peers knew about what being a lawyer actually looks like. So now I don't really do any arguing basically at all. <laughs> yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm yeah, a tax, tax law is not really a... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, it has its moments, but for the most part, I'm working on um, different transactions between organizations. So not what I started out um, thinking that I would be doing, but definitely something I love. That's awesome. Yeah, that's cool. And with the, so my husband actually is went to law school, but in order to do tax law, is that why you went to get your master's? Like it's a kind of a specialty or is it separate? Yes. So it's called an LLM and yes, it's a LLM. specialty law degree. The way that um, law school works is that you're not able to specialize in one particular area. You can take enough classes in one area to become proficient, of course, but I had the chance to shadow a lot of different people working at the IRS and they all had their LLMs. And so it was pretty clear to me to be successful here and in this field, I, I need to get one. And that was totally worth it. I loved my experience with Georgetown. Yeah, that's really cool. Is that mm-hmm. a one or two year program? It's just a one year program. One it was program. really short. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Some of my husband's, you know, law school friends went on to get their LLM. But <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. And I, th- I was thinking about, cause your bio talked about your flute playing and that you're in some orchestra. So did that start when you were young as a child? Yes, it did. My mother played the flute and she was just so elegant when she was playing. I loved watching her and I begged and begged and begged my parents for a flute. And so when I was about nine years old, they purchased one for me for Christmas. And it's been the greatest love of my life ever since i I would spend hours and hours playing all through high school and into college, and that slowed down a little bit since I've I've gone into my career, but that's why I enjoy playing with the orchestras is because it keeps me connected to that, and it keeps me connected to my childhood, my roots, things like that. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's I love really that. Cool. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like you do a lot. I'm like, okay, orchestra. <laughs> so did you, if you coach high school swimming, did you do swimming in high school then? I did, yeah. I began swimming, I think, around middle school. But I like to say I started a lot earlier because I would always race my siblings and eventually they just stopped racing me because they were (laughs) mad that I would always win. And my dad had been a swimmer and so he was like, okay, there's some potential here. We're going to put you in swimming. And that really helped me grow and gain some self-confidence and things like that. And so then when the opportunity came up to potentially coach swimming, um, I really jumped at that opportunity. I just 
moved to Ohio, I didn't really know anyone in the community. And one of the managing partners at my law firm said, well, I coached soccer when I first started as an associate. And that helped me feel more connected to the area. Like you, you could do something like that. So I found a lovely little high school. I started coaching for them and I, I absolutely love it. I know that my coaches were great mentors for me, both in the water and out of it. And that's something that I hope I'm able to provide my students. That's so cool. So you do it right now as well? Not right now. So I, when I came to Utah, it was too late to get into that opportunity. I, I still do swim lessons, but Mm. I definitely next year for next season, will be looking at a place to be more permanently. Oh, nice. Okay. And yeah, so it said you, you serve it. So when you go back to do your, the Miss America volunteer, are you representing Ohio still? Like yes. I, okay. Okay. Yes. So I did the Miss Ohio competition in September and then got this new position, um, like a month or so after that. Oh, okay. so. oh and then you moved to Utah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. I was trying to like time-wise put that together. Yeah. But, and I don't, yeah. I don't think I've really maybe explain what that is like a Miss Ohio volunteer program like does every state have that like does Utah have that as well or is it something yes the Miss Volunteer America program is one that is nationwide so we have representatives from every state ready to go to nationals this year in June which I'm really excited to to meet all the women and get to know them and what the program is all about is it's a scholarship pageant and it pushes women to be their best selves to volunteer in their communities and just gives them a way to develop personal and professional skills. I know for myself, I have gone from not feeling comfortable talking in public at all or even really doing interviews to now doing it very frequently and booking speaking tours and things like that. So for me, I know that I've gained really invaluable skills. And that's part of the reason that I wanted to serve on the state level, because I wanted to show that even if you don't have any background in this area, that you can be successful in pageants, that you can gain scholarships from this. I think I've won over $50,000 worth of scholarships through the different organizations that I've done, which law school loans, that definitely helps. (laughs) So so it's a great opportunity for women. And I, I really want everyone to, to know about it, to give it a shot, even if they don't think that they'll be great at it, because that's how I started. So I want people to know that they can do it as well. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, I didn't even know that existed, I don't think. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize. I'm sure it's like a really good way for you to connect with other people too. And especially with your nonprofits, like it probably works really well hand in hand to like get the word out for what you're doing there and then get to know new people. And anyway, that's really cool. Maybe you could tell us how your nonprofit came about. Like what was the push for that and how did that get started? The background, yeah. When I was in law school, I was told that I had to do something called the substantial writing paper in order to graduate. And I was like, okay, substantial writing. I have no idea what that means. And it was my second year of law school. They just said that you had to complete it by the end of your third year. But being the overachiever that I am, I was like, well, I want to get this done as soon as possible and not have it hanging over my head or anything like that. And at that point, I didn't know what area of law I wanted to go into, but I had had an experience as a sexual assault survivor. And without going into too much detail, essentially, I was sexually assaulted by my high school boyfriend and it was through coercion and because of the circumstances of the assault i didn't realize that what happened to me qualified as assault and it was later in college that i realized that i was i had been sexually assaulted and i was kind of angry and bitter and frustrated but not not just at the perpetrator i was also angry because my sexual education in high school had been oh, you're a piece of chewed gum if you have sex, or oh, your virginity is a present that you get to give your future spouse and things like that. Like it had nothing to do with safety around sex. It basically just was like you're going to get pregnant or STDs or you'll be invaluable as a human being if you have sex. And so I had carried a weight on my shoulders for years after my assault, thinking that it was my fault, blaming myself. But then also I was left with what ifs. I was left with, what if they had taught him what consent was? Would he have asked for it? What if I knew what consent was? Would I have known I could give or not give it? If they told him about coercion, would he have coerced me? Would I have known it qualified as assault and gotten help sooner? And it's really, really frustrating to think 
about the fact that all of these things and all this pain that I experienced might have been prevented if people just weren't afraid to talk about sex in high school. And so I went to law school and I had this substantial writing paper and I thought, well, I don't know what I want to write it about for sure, but I feel like there's something there about sexual education laws and the ability that we have to prevent sexual assault through improving our sexual education laws. And so I did the study not knowing for sure whether or not anything was there. And I went to my advisor with the numbers that I'd run, and he said, this is not possible. These numbers, like, you must have done something wrong because the numbers cannot be that strong. And so he made me go back and do them again and do them again and do them again because the correlation between sexual assault and sexual education was so direct that it it borders on causation, I'll say. I mean, Mm. research-wise, you can't really say that, but... He, he had me look at all of these other factors too, like um, what are some of the examples of that? We had um, cultural differences, religious differences, um, different political affiliations in different states, urbanizations of the state climate, um, male to female population ratios, just every factor you could think of that might go into sexual assault. I looked at those and the only factor that correlated was sexual education. And that showed me that we can prevent sexual assault through sexual education. And this study, I finished it, I published it through my school and I won a couple of awards for it. And I thought this is cool information and clearly it's picking up traction. And I really want to go ahead and volunteer for a nonprofit that works on sexual assault prevention through education. And there are a ton of really great nonprofits out there that talk about how to help survivors and what we can do to support them. But I'm like, I don't want there to be survivors in the first place. But I couldn't find one that focused on prevention through education. So I decided to go ahead and start my own using that can-do attitude that my parents had instilled in me. Yeah. And I I started it from there and it's it's really picked up. I think it's been about four years now. And we have 14 state chapters. We have dozens and dozens of volunteers, thousands of people following us on social media, hosting a ton of different events. So I know that this information is needed and that the work I'm doing is important. Yeah. Wow. It is crazy. Like yeah. I, I mean, we do live in a Um, culture here in Utah that is very not talked about and very much just abstinence and then like you said the whole kind of if you do have sex it's kind of a chewed gum theory it's kind of a like I don't know theory but like a chewed gum mentality like you're used and it's so it's so hard I think for kids or even adults to um, talk about it or to admit it or to and everything, I feel like too, it's like a blame on yourself. Like you didn't even think to blame this boy until later. Like, wait, I didn't really consent to this. I didn't, you know, and he, him not knowing either. I've seen this, um, one of my daughter's, um, friend's mom showed me this video and maybe you've seen it. It's on YouTube and I wish I, I'll have to look it up, but it's like these stick figures and they're talking about tea. Have you yes. seen that? Yeah. Uh-huh. And I'm like, oh, this is so awesome because you know, it's like, okay, sometimes it's embarrassing or hard to talk to, to, about mm-hmm. sex. Certain people have a hard time talking about it. So the whole idea was saying, okay, if you want tea, then say you want tea, but you can also change your mind. If someone goes to get tea ready for you and they come back and give you tea, you say, actually, I don't want my tea. I don't want it now. Or, or even if you start to drink the tea and you're like, oh wait, no, never mind, I don't want the tea. Or if one time you say you want tea, but the next time, the next day you actually don't want tea, mm-hmm. you know, it's just this whole idea of consent and yeah. that mm-hmm. it's okay to say no anytime and that I just don't know if we're even taught that because it's always like just don't have sex and one really valuable part of that video that I like and something that my nonprofit focuses on as well is not just like oh you can say no it's like also when someone says no to you that's a no I one part yes of that video it's the opposite yeah. yeah it's the exactly the person and, offering and the tea yeah, and that's what ends up being more important, right? Because there's not a lot that women or or men can do to prevent themselves from being sexually assaulted, but we can prevent people from becoming perpetrators by teaching them these concepts. And so one part of that video that really sticks out to me is if someone's asleep and you wanted them to have tea, you wouldn't like pour tea on them. Like that would, that would be ridiculous. Right. That wouldn't make mm. any sense, right? And that's an aspect of consent as well, where you know, if someone's incapacitated, you're not going to engage in any behavior with them. So right. that's so a really, really like that yeah. part of that as well. Yeah. It's both sides of it. It's the one. Yeah. It, it's so good. I think it's a great, 
and I've showed my older kids just because and I think it can be both sides because sometimes you think, oh, it's just for my daughter. But I think it's also mm-hmm. for my son, like on both sides. I feel like women or girls nowadays are maybe a little bit more forward in that it's OK for my son to say no. It's not just a girl yeah. thing, you know, goes both ways. And yeah, but good for them to learn, too. And I loved how, you know, going back to your story of it. You pointed out, like, if he would have just known, he may not have done those things. I mean, we can't say for sure. Maybe he still would have. Maybe he, you know, I mean, it's hard to say, but it's just as much for the perpetrator as the victim, like you're saying, to, for them to be educated about it. You know, like, we're protecting our kids to teach them about this, too, so that they're protected in these situations. Because, well, you know, it's everyone. Yeah, and and one thing I'll say is I I believe that it's even more for the perpetrators than mm. the victims because I go for for my work part of the things that I do is I go to high schools and I talk to um, high school sports <laughs> teams and and things like that and discuss with them like these are these concepts and these boys they look at me and they genuinely have questions about oh okay mm. so this is consent and this isn't and this is how I ask for it and oh I didn't know that that her not saying anything was bad, right? I thought that that was maybe good or or whatever. And, and more often than not, sexual assault is perpetrated by someone who is an acquaintance or a intimate partner of the victim. Most of the time, that's that's what's happening. I think it's every eight out of 10 sexual assaults are that way. But I don't think that anyone goes into an intimate situation, whether it just starts with making out or what have you, thinking, I want to hurt this other person. I want to assault this other person. That's just generally not what happens, right? Right. We have then this problem of just misunderstanding what these concepts are. So in New Jersey, for example, where they teach about consent and coercion, and they touch very little actually on refusal skills and your power to say no, they focus more on the the perpetrator side, New Jersey is the the state with the lowest rate of sexual assault because it is focused on the perpetrator because um, it's it's them knowing what is right and what is wrong. And anyone who is advancing a sexual scenario or wanting to move forward intimately knowing that they should ask and that that's how that should go. That's so interesting. And I love that because it gives, it's not just like labeling, you know, if you call them a perpetrator, even that sounds a little bit um, harsh, but that is what they end up being if they're not educated mm-hmm. or, you know, and, and do those steps or whatever. But but it's like kind of giving them a lot of grace. Like you're saying, like if they just have the education skills, probably a lot less people would be become perpetrators like you're in New Jersey and everything. So anyway, I think that it's. Yeah. And it's I do think really because mean, sex isn't talked about very much, even though because I think I guess because it's like a, a natural thing that humans do is to become intimate with each other. So if kids that are, you know mentally just not ready for this but they're not very mature yeah and even if they both don't want it but they're too embarrassed to say they don't when they've gotten to a certain point it's like if you can be educated enough to say you know what I think I want to stop yeah me too like it's weird to think they're comfortable doing that but they're not comfortable saying I don't want to right like if they had the language and maybe adults that have modeled like this is how you talk about sex in healthy ways then they might not be so embarrassed to bring it up but you're right like there's some mutual peer pressure I think sometimes with kids where they might just kind of go down a path they don't even necessarily want to, but also like their brain skills aren't very developed yet. I mean, I don't think our brains fully developed till we're what, like 25 or so. So yeah. I mean, you know, and it doesn't, and, and I'm not even just saying kids only because I have kids that are, yeah, I know. Aids. I think we keep, it can happen it. Yeah. in yeah any age or any right. time of your life. You can be, um, you know, sexually assaulted or yeah. it can be any yeah. age, but well, yeah. And maybe those adults, I was also thinking about like, so if, if they don't have parents that are very open, if they don't have the school system that's very open, what examples do the kids have? Well, they have like music and media, and that's not usually great. I mean, I don't know yeah. what, maybe if you've done any research around that or thought around that, I'm sure you have. But I just wonder if sometimes these kids who end up becoming perpetrators are like, well, I've seen this in the movies, or I've seen this here, and I think this is what I'm supposed to do. You know what I mean? And and then maybe take it too far. Or I don't know. It's just like a guess, but... <laughs> Yeah, one thing that um, I don't I don't have any like research behind this, but one thing that my nonprofit does do is we have a curriculum for parents to talk to their kids about sexual assault or just about respecting other people's bodies starting at a young age. Um, just giving them an idea of like, okay, this is how you talk about it if you want to talk about it. But you're right, there are so many instances where 
the the parents aren't talking about it or the school isn't talking about it and media is really problematic in this and I mean I I don't even want to touch on how bad pornography is for the consent right thing. I think about that but, too yeah yeah but um one thing that my nonprofit does in addition to the curriculum is we share video clips of instances where someone did ask for consent and instances where you know, there, there's a good representation of a sexual assault survivor, things like that, because that's what helps remove the stigma. I know when I was in law school, there was um, a presentation going on by the Title IX office called Can I Kiss You? And my friends were kind of like, the heck, that sounds like so weird. Like if someone asks, like they can, if they can kiss you, right? Like that's so awkward. But as I started doing more of this research and realizing um, how important that is and understanding that that comes from a place of like respecting the other person. And now I love it when people ask if they can kiss me rather than just going right. for it. Right. So I, I think it's helping to destigmatize it. So that way kids, when they see these kind of like, can I kiss you and things like that, they're not, they're not thinking it's going to be awkward. So that's part of the reason that we do share that media. So they understand like, this isn't awkward. Like this was a really cute situation or, or things like that. So that way that understanding is there. Yeah. That's really good. I like that. Um, you know, I was just thinking about Utah itself. Do you, I mean, I should know this. Like, I, so I have a 15-year-old and a 13-year-old. So my kids are kind of getting to this age. And then Chantel has some older yeah. uh, teens too. But I'm just wondering, are we still in abstinence only <laughs> in, in, yeah. in sex education? We probably, I mean, I know what we were when I went through school. Yeah. I feel like I've signed the health papers. Like you can say whether or not you want them to have that lesson. But I yes. just don't know how far they go. It's yeah. pretty vague, I know we're one vague. of the most, con- I mean, con- I don't mean to use conservative in a derogatory way, but yeah, with that topic, you know. Yeah. So Utah is very abstinence heavy. I wouldn't say that they're abstinence only because they do go over um, some sexual concepts, but they don't really touch on consent and coercion and things like that in a proper way. Um, and teachers also aren't allowed to answer any questions. And like I said, when I'm going into high schools and talking to football teams or what have you, when they have me as a guest speaker, there are a lot of questions about about what it means. And the, the Utah curriculum just isn't very developed in that. It's also not a required part of the curriculum. So a child could go through their entire schooling and never hear about it once, never even hear about abstinence once because of the way that it's structured here. And it is pretty disappointing because Utah does have a very, very high rate of sexual assault, especially compared to other states. Mm-hmm. There, there are, of course, violent crimes that happen everywhere, but sexual assault is the only crime, only violent crime in Utah that takes place at a higher rate than all the other states. So oh, wow. all the other violent crimes are lower, but rape and sexual assault in Utah is disproportionately higher. Oh, wow. That's interesting. And it kind of, yeah, that kind of goes along with your just your paper of yes. education, like it matches up really well to like you're saying, it almost does feel like causation. Um, I mean, you probably don't want to like label it as that, but it feels very yeah. strong. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. And it is Crazy. hard. Cause I, um, do people ever fight to have that be, is there like any type of legislation or things where people want that more, or is it just kind of not a non negotiable yeah, yeah. Like in Utah? Do you know? So, it's there's been bills a few times I actually wrote and presented a bill a few years ago part of the problem though is that there's such a misunderstanding in the legislature about what these different things would mean and kind of an unwillingness to listen um and i think that utah has really amazing legislators but it is really difficult sometimes to get them to listen because as soon as they hear the word sex education or even we try to change my bill to say health education um, yeah, to kind of get more is, people though, on yeah. board they get very, very scared and wanting to back off. And so it's, it is difficult to, to move forward in that because they think, well, my constituents don't want that. But I think if their constituents and if they understood the research and that we're not wanting to push kids to have sex, that we're just teaching them, even for kissing, holding hands, anything like that, that consent is important and that these are building blocks for their whole future and not just something about like what they're going to learn about sex in high school, I think that people would, would come to a much better understanding of why this is so important. So definitely something we're still working on. There are different bills working on different things. I know that in the past few years, Utah has introduced um, personal safety education. So that idea of if um, you are 
assaulted by someone that you know to tell a teacher, to tell a family member, things like that. So there has been some progress in the past decade or so, but we still have a really long way to go. Yeah. Yeah. It just made me think, I think, um, and you can probably tell me if this is part of it. I feel like when you think about sexual assault and you think about rape, you think of a stranger, you think of someone you don't know, you think of someone like attacking you in a back alley. Like, I mean, and so I think that I wonder a lot of it is what you're saying that most of it's from people we know and maybe even someone you have a relationship with and that we don't even know the language or we don't even know that it's okay to say, like you were saying, you didn't know that that was even a thing till later. So that this happens so much that you don't even like, you'd say, well, I wouldn't call it that because we'll say you've already had sex with that person once before. And then they are coercing you in a time where you don't want to, that is still sexual assault, but you don't even see it as that because well, I am in a relationship with this person and we have before. Mm -hmm. And so I think that education part is so huge because I think like a lot of people wouldn't even consider that or even call it that. I don't know. Like, is that how it is? Yeah, that, that is a large issue. Right. And then of course, like what you're saying about people thinking of it as a stranger or whatever, I definitely think that's true. I mean, the most the most common question that me and my nonprofit gets, and I actually just made a post about this uh, yesterday, is the question of what do you do to help women prevent themselves from, from becoming sexually assaulted? And it's like, I mean, we encourage personal safety, but that's not what we're about. Um, because most sexual assaults are from an intimate partner or an acquaintance. And a lot of those, the, the individuals did have a um, consensual relationship at some point before engaging in, um, in the, before the sexual assault took place. And so what we focus on with that as well, and what a huge focus I think should be in sexual education is not only, oh, okay, like even though I've done it before with this person, I said no this time, so that means it's sexual assault. But also, even though this person did it with you before, because they're saying no now, that means that you are sexually assaulting them. So do not do that. And it's, it, it is something that I think can get really confusing and really difficult, not only for kids, but for people of all ages to understand where the line is, to understand what they have to do to, to gain permission, to gain consent, and to move forward in any given activity, because it consent isn't that hard, but sometimes we, we make it hard by, by complicating it. And I think a lot of that does come from victim blaming that we see in the media and things like that. Because I remember one case when I was younger, it was about sexual assault and it's like, Oh, they'd had sex before. And so that was ruining her credibility. And it's like, well, it shouldn't, right? Like, but that's part of the problem or the whole, what was she wearing or, or things like that, Mm -hmm. that it's, it becomes progressively when we are saying these things about victims, we're also teaching perpetrators or would-be perpetrators that it's okay and that there's some sort of excuse when there really isn't. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about, it's interesting because you think about like, like a power dynamic in a relationship, you know, like, I mean, of course women can be perpetrators too, but I'm just thinking about like kind of the, and I don't want to use this word negatively either, but I don't know what, how else to use it. Like patriarchal structures, you know, men tend to have more kind of the upper hand in women. And I just feel like I've even heard around marriage, like, well, you can't sexually assault your own wife. Like I have permission anytime. Yeah. Yeah. Cause we're married, but I'm thinking, and, but I also feel like men listening or men that maybe have, and even women like that maybe have more of that mentality. Like I'd love to take it a step further of why that's harmful because I personally feel that is a disrespect and it's going to cause trauma. Even if you're married, if your husband, Mm -hmm. or even if you're in a relationship as a teen or an adult or whatever, like they're never just granted that permission to, to right. force something that isn't wanted. And I do feel like in the long run, it's going to cause trauma and hurt in the relationship. So it's for the best of both to understand this, but I just feel like there's this idea floating around out there and it's probably, you know, um, trickled over from years past because of course, thinking back many years, that's why I brought up like patriarchy and stuff. When women were more suppressed, like we have gained more rights and we can speak out But I just feel like women's bodies weren't theirs in a lot of relationships. I mean, hopefully some in many there was still respect, but they didn't really have the right to speak out if they were assaulted. You know, they were property of their husbands. Yeah. And yeah, that that's something that was reflected in the law as well. There were I think in every state there was some sort of law saying that 
legally it's not sexual assault if you rape your wife, um, that it just doesn't qualify. And that's been largely abolished, but I'm, wow. it's hard to, to say. Like, there are still states that have that. I mean, there's just like two of them. And a lot of them don't even follow that statute, but let's get it off the books, right? Like it shouldn't be there at all. There shouldn't be any suggestion that consent is given in any situation. So you're right. I think that's, that's part of the harm of, um, of what these laws have done or what the media does, things like that, is that we then don't understand when sexual or when consent exists and when it doesn't. Yeah. And I just feel like, you know, in years past when women weren't in positions of power, when they didn't have say in these systems, if that was put on the books, if obviously it was from men. So now that we're getting more equal, you know, if you had the women saying it, I'm sure they'd say, yes, I want consent. You know, I don't want right. to feel powerless in these situations in my home or, or whatever. So anyway, I feel like the trickle over from some of those past things, then, you know, some of the people the older generations in our society may still be passing on those messages to the younger without even really realizing that they're doing it. It's not that they're horrible people and they're trying to be harming. And, but again, not talking about consent, but maybe like you hear those little jokes, you know, I was going to say jokes, like in a way where they think it's funny and, Oh, I'm not even serious, but the, the older generation of like women are property or yeah. Or like, she's my wife or only speak when you're spoken to or you know, things like that. Like even that is being like, Oh, so I'm not supposed to say anything if my husband's, doing something or my significant other. So anyway, it's interesting. And I don't know. I know that's probably like, we could talk about that for hours, but it's just an interesting part of it. it. Yeah. Yeah. That I thought. And I'll add one part to that, that I think is really important is, um, not teaching that women are the sexual gatekeepers, right? Because Mm. oftentimes the way that we speak about women's desire and men's desire is really different. That Mm -hmm. men's desire is seen as nearly uncontrollable understanding. Like these days we do talk and understand that men can control themselves, but that they're generally the ones pushing and that they should be pushing or what have you. And that puts a certain pressure on young men, right. To feel some sort of masculine, like, Oh, I, I should want this or I, or even that it's acceptable to want it in such a way that you're pushing someone too much. Right. But then women often their desire is seen as, Oh, well they have desire. That's great. But make sure that it's only with your husband or make sure that you're abstinent until marriage sort of things. And that's pushed more on women. So women are seen as the sexual gatekeepers in our society, I'd say more so than men and that it's not as much of an equal partnership. And, and perhaps this is true with, with hormones that men do desire more and that women desire less, but what needs to be discussed is less. So that idea of, Oh, just, just, you don't do it if, if you don't want to sort of thing, but that, or you don't do it if the other person doesn't want to, but also discussions, talking about what you are or are not comfortable with as a partnership and together. I think that that's a really important aspect of it as well, because then women aren't seen as this sexual gatekeeper that then can be pushed and pushed and pushed um, until like coercion happens or until they do um, acquiesce, which is not consent, but <laughs> until they acquiesce. And so that's that's, I think, an important element of it, too, that still permeates our education, or at least the way that our society talks about sexual intimacy today. Yeah. And I was thinking about what you said earlier about, you know, not labeling like the woman like, oh, because of what she wore, she -hmm. was asking for it. You know, I think about that a lot, but I'm like, that's giving so much, like, not giving the men credit at all. Like they're humans, they have brains. They're actually super smart. So you're, but not only not giving them credit, but sending them the messaging that they don't have control over themselves when they see a girl wearing a short skirt or bikini or something like, isn't it giving them so much more, first of all, like credit or whatever, like, like we think so much higher of them to think you can be around a woman in a bikini and it's not going to cause you to be a sexual predator. If we're giving you the right skills and talking about it, like not labeling it as this scary thing. Yeah. I feel like it's a, it's bad for both the men and the women to have that messaging. It's, well, because because then I think it permeates into the conversations around like modesty and what have you as well as this right. idea of like, oh, you don't want to distract men. And that's one saying to the woman, it's your fault if a man's mm-hmm. distracted. And then two saying to the man you that you should be distracted right. by women who are dressed differently. And it's 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 doing both parties a disservice and a dif- discredit. So I think you're right. Yeah, exactly. That's an interesting part of all this. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, that's so interesting that you were yeah that you were able to do that 
paper in yeah, law school. So impressive. Yeah. And, and like you said in your bio, like so many, it's been read and I don't know. I am, I just love that. Obviously I feel passionate about the topic too. I think just because now is like an adult woman and raising kids, mm-hmm. like you see, you know, like we've kind of experienced different, you know, situations in our own life. And now we're, we're bringing our kids into this. And like, how yeah, can like we... I have a daughter in college, you yeah. know, and it's like, yeah. you do have this weird, I remember showing her that video, like whether it's your boyfriend or whether it's some person you just met or whether it's your best friend, like mm-hmm. there's still consent on both sides and you, and responsibility on both sides to say what you really feel and, and not feel like pushed or I don't know. It's, it's a weird <laughs> thing to have your kids growing up and being in these situations and you don't. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like disappointed, you know, that there isn't more, um, consent talk in school because I was also thinking when you were saying that I'm like, maybe I'm the anomaly here, but my kids really get a lot out of school. Like they respect their teachers. They like their teachers. They like having discussions, my older kids. I mean, Mm -hmm. and I love that about school. I love being able to send them and learn from someone else there's only so much we can say at home of like, pick up your clothes, do your laundry, eat your food, whatever. And they just start to tune us out. I'm not saying that top talking around this isn't beneficial. I think it is, but I just wish that there was more other people that they could hear this from that they respect. Cause most of the time they do Mm -hmm. really admire and look up to their teachers. And these are people wanting to help them, you know? So anyway, I just, I wish that there was more access to this kind of thing. And I think it's somewhat naive to just think, okay, we'll just teach abstinence, maybe just a little bit about maybe protection. And then that's it. Like, it's naive to think that, okay, most kids won't have sex. Most kids won't be in a situation where they're coerced to be doing something they don't want to do. It seems naive. Like, right. Well, all we have to think about is when we were in high school, it has, if anything, it's, I shouldn't say it's gotten more. I don't know, but I mean, we know, I'm sure plenty of us knew people that were, or maybe even if we didn't know that they were like, maybe had some, and it's just life, you know, it's just what it is. So yeah, it's naive to think yeah, we never want to think our kids are, you know, necessarily, but at least giving them the tools and the education around it. And anyway, it's just going to protect all of a them. lot of people. Yeah. 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 Well, and something that I try to say to parents when they're a little bit resistant of me talking to their kids about this or of teaching their kids, it's like, it's teaching them the right way to do the wrong thing because it's like they're if they're if that's a situation that they're going to be in if that's a situation they're going to create for themselves at least don't sexually assault someone right like if you're going to like have sex like of course it's not that's i not a wise decision i think at certain ages um but it's teaching okay but just don't hurt someone else. Right. And I think that that's a good way for people to understand like that's that this education, it's not about teaching kids to do these things. It's about teaching them not to hurt each other because what happens when we don't talk about it is that they are accidentally hurting each other or maybe purposely hurting each other. And then people like me live with trauma for five years, not understanding and not seeking help and not knowing what resources are out there. And so that's just the biggest thing that I can say to to parents who might be resistant to this, although it's awkward to talk about, or maybe you don't want it talked about in schools. One, sexual values are best taught in the home, not necessarily sexual education, because you're right, it's great to hear a bunch of different perspectives from different people that they respect. But as far as the sexual values is concerned, like you teach them what their values are, and then school teaches them the concepts, and then you in turn teach them how to apply those concepts to their values. Hmm. Oh, yeah, I like that. Yeah, that's a good way to explain it. Yeah, that's really good. And I love how you keep bringing it back, because I think it's easy to have it be the the person say, oh, you didn't give consent, say no, but you're saying the person, like, teach our kids not to hurt others, like, yeah. because it is both sides, and you mentioned that a mm-hmm. lot of it's the education on the perpetrator side, to know that they didn't realize that they were doing it, and they didn't realize that they needed consent, or that the non-action is actually a no, like, an, you know, not saying yeah. yes is a no, and so that's yeah. so important, I just think we, yeah, not looking it's for like, that. I feel like in society or whatever, we've kind of thought of it on the other side, like, if the um, yeah, that's so true. Well, we want to think about our kids and even ourselves as being the victim in the situation, yeah, not victim, the perpetrator. Yeah. yeah. Because that like puts the less blame and everything. I mean, mm-hmm. and not that, because again, like, like you, you've had trauma from it, you know, and you've had to work through that and everything. But I think you're, that's why I 
am so ad, like have so much admiration for you that you're giving the grace to the perpetrator and saying like, if they don't know, they don't know, and they may not be meaning to do it. So why, mm-hmm. why not give them the information they know they need? Cause like you're saying, maybe yeah. even back in your situation, it could have been prevented, you know? So, yeah, exactly. yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously there are evil people out there, but I think right. for the most part, people don't want to hurt other people. And the study ref- studies reflect that as this idea that if we teach them, it will happen at a less frequent rate. And I think another part of this as well is that when someone feels threatened, um, even if the other person doesn't mean to make them feel threatened, like asking repeatedly is something that goes against consent, right? And that can make someone feel uncomfortable if they're being asked repeatedly or saying no or not responding. Um, this can induce in someone the fight, flight, or freeze response. And so we can't put it on the the individual who's not advancing the situation to say no, because we don't know how they're feeling and what emotions are going on. We have to put it on the person who is advancing the situation to get an enthusiastic, informed, knowledgeable, free yes from that okay. person in order to move forward. So, so that's why I think the the conversation needs to change and thankfully has been changing around consul- around consent in the past few years. Yeah. Yeah. And that's true. I've heard a lot about that whole freeze thing that like, you know, you hear that like, well, they didn't say no and they didn't run away and they didn't push me away. So, but like, you don't know what their reaction would be in a situation like that, that if it is yeah. a freeze kind of thing where they don't really know what to do. Yeah. They might feel anxious and, and have like, not feel like they can speak up, maybe even scared or, you know, but mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good, just a good message to be like, right. that's not a yes either. You know what I mean? That's yeah, not a tea exactly. video. We'll and have to yeah. link the tea video. Yes, yeah. yes. Let's link it here. For I haven't sure. actually seen it. Oh, you so have it? Yeah. I have Oh, it's a good one. And I'll yeah. have to show yeah. my kids. That sounds really yeah. good. And it's kind of an easy way like to bring up the topic of sex. Because you don't want to like just pretend like, okay, watch this. And then not actually acknowledge that it's talking about sex. So, But it's a good way to yeah. bring it up in a way that's like... I mean, it's little, they're little stick figure cartoons and they're talking about tea, but then you're like, okay, you do realize what they're talking about here. And then it can lead into other discussions. And you may be like, like for me, I feel really comfortable. Like I would feel fine talking to my kids about this, but they might be embarrassed. Like, and often, like, especially the older they get, they're like, I'm not talking to my mom about that. So that's a great way that you can be like, just remember you're inserting sex for tea here and think about it in that way. And then let's watch this. And if you have it, let's, then let's talk if you want to, but you know, like, well, yeah, and that's anyway. part of what my children's book does is it, it does a similar thing. So it's called, do you want a cookie? And it's a matter. Oh, of I was going to ask oh, you yeah. about, I kind of assumed yeah, it would so, be on that same line. So oh, yeah, cool. tell us yeah, about yeah, the book. Yeah. So it's that same idea, but it's kind of dumbed down a little bit because what I run into most frequently is parents waiting too late to talk to their kids about this and not knowing, you know, how they can bring these conversations up earlier. So what the children's book does is it has kind of similar to the tea video, a bunch of different scenarios where someone is offering cookies to someone or wants to play with someone else and um, the the other person is asleep or they say no or all these other things and it doesn't ever directly mention sex or sexual assault with the exception of the appendix to the book which um, gives parents kind of a play-by-play of the different scenes and what sexual concept it's meant to convey so there's a scene where um the one of the characters Ava wants to play soccer with her friend Kyle and she walks in and Kyle's asleep and so she's like well like I guess I can't play with him right now and it kind of it goes through that idea or another scene in which um Kyle wants Ava to drink some milk and so he pours milk on Ava even though she said no um and Ava immediately tells a teacher which is like a good thing like okay if if someone does disrespect you or your body you immediately tell someone else and so it gives parents this tool and this way to talk about it at a very young age without having to actually bring in the sexual aspect. They can bring it in whenever they're comfortable with it or whenever they're comfortable or they believe that their child is mature enough for that. And one thing I will say about the children's maturity aspect, because I get a lot of pushback about wanting to make sexual education and using the word sex in junior high is um, that if that too often people think that their children are, too young to know about these concepts, but unfortunately, um, in middle school, especially, um, they're not too young to be sexually assaulted and they're not too young to accidentally assault someone else because sexual assault isn't just, um, isn't just a matter of 
sex. It's a matter of um, kissing, of doing anything to another person's body that that could harm them. So that's part of the reason that I did have this book, and it kind of is a good good accompaniment to the tea video with being yeah, yeah a little it makes bit you want to get it. Yeah, I want to get it too. Well, and especially the younger kids. Yeah, because um, we both have like eight, nine year olds. Yeah, like, I feel oh, like oh, that yeah. would be perfect. It'd be perfect. Yeah, and and it's like I love it because it's it's introducing the topic of consent, like you said, around something that's not sex. But if they can start mm-hmm. to think of consent with all Anything, kinds of things yeah. in life, yeah, because they have permission to set boundaries to to require respect of other people and so it's so cool and then as they get older I feel like um it just will naturally like carry over to that you know so anyway that's really cool good so what's the name of the book again so it's called do you want a cookie and it's available on our website wewillorg.com just on the shop tab we will org okay we'll link to that um for anyone listening and yeah, we're, I'm going to order it. Yeah, I'm excited. <laughs> I need something like this. So that's perfect. Yeah, I have, I have eight-year-old twins and Chantal has a nine-year-old. So. Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. Yeah, perfect time. But still, the older kids can read it too. Like the video is yeah. great, oh, sure. but the cool thing about a book is you have it sitting around your house. They can revisit mm-hmm. it. Maybe mm-hmm. like, again, look at a picture and be like, oh, okay, that's clicking now. You know, I feel yeah. like. Yeah, because even with yeah. like, um, you know, I feel like some of my kids have had the thing like, oh, they always just want to like push me or they always want to. Like yeah. they're always grabbing my backpack or pulling it back yeah. or like just any type of like boundary where you're yeah. like, okay, mm-hmm. I, I can say no, like, don't do that to me. And mm-hmm. if you do, you know, if you do it again, I need to tell somebody. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and for the other kid that's doing it, cause some kids are yeah, more prone exactly. to learn, like, that's not okay. I can't just mm-hmm. keep doing yeah. that to the other person just because I feel like it and I want to tease someone or bug someone, you know, or right. whatever. So mm-hmm. anyway, that's, uh, that's great. Um, all right. And then maybe you can tell us a little more about your nonprofit. Cause we, you know, you kind of got to that, but then we got back to all the, <laughs> the specifics. About, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And what you do yeah. with it and everything like that. So WeWill's mission is we will prevent sexual assault and empower survivors through formal and informal education, community growth and survivor support. So the formal education looks like getting bills passed in different States and different um, localities to, to make it to where the, these concepts are taught in school. The informal education are some of those resources that we've already talked about, the curriculum, the book. Um, we're going to start a video series here soon as well to, to help parents know how to talk about things. And also we do speeches ourselves. So I go to different schools, I go to different universities and offer some informal education about this. Then we have community growth, which is just about creating communities that are accepting of survivors that understand their value and understand what they're providing to to or what kind of services survivors need provided to them as well as the support that survivors need and then the final one is survivor support so directly linking survivors with resources that help them overcome their sexual assault that help them heal as well as allowing survivors to share their stories because that can be a really powerful thing as someone who's gone through a sexual assault yeah yeah for sure wow that's cool so you do all kinds of things in that organization that's yeah. really all from education the- to helping others that have experienced it that's really cool so do yeah. you we just talked to someone recently that has a nonprofit. so do you get grants is it mostly donations like how do you so it's definitely a mix we we've gotten some grants we get some public support just from donations and then we also do merchandise sales to help support okay. all of our activities and what we're doing and we've been really great um or we've been really grateful to receive different support from the community through different events that we've held like our sexual assault awareness conference we have one coming up um at the end of march and then also we do a sexual assault awareness 5k that's totally virtual and you can participate from anywhere and just allows you to to get involved as well as to for us to earn a little bit of of money on the side as well yeah that's awesome. wow so kind of how big is the do you have like a board or how many people are involved um, there you. is a board. I would say we have seven or so people who are doing this every day. They're working on it. We also accept interns from different colleges and things like that. So if anyone's listening and they need an internship, feel, re- feel free to reach out to us. And then we have across the country 50, 50 or more volunteers just working in their areas, doing different things that are, are maybe more um, in or out or just have... Um, one particular thing that they'll work on, but we're really grateful for their support as well. Wow. That's, that's really, really cool. cool. And and you started this, like 
you it's so impressive i, know, I, I like, mean wow. i'm thinking and you're like a full-time lawyer and you're doing this and you're young yeah, yeah you're really young that's really cool that's awesome yeah, well young but starting to get the gray hairs i think from the stress <laughs> well, i got i got them those. young too yeah. it just happens for some people at least you're blonde it can cover it up yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. yeah ours were like we have to dye our hair like every yeah, two weeks. yeah. Such a pain. yeah yeah, yeah. Oh. well that is really impressive so how long ago was that that you started that I started it in 2019. So it's been about four Mm, years. years. And I think with the level of growth that we've experienced through the nonprofit, especially starting with like nothing, like I didn't know what I was doing. and I didn't know Mm -hmm. how to get grants or donations or anything like that, or even how to run a nonprofit to have it grow so much in only four years really shows to me how hungry our nation is for, for this information and how much it's needed and how much we need to talk about it. And it is difficult and it's hard to, to talk about my assault, to talk about these things all the time. But I do it because although I can live with the fact that I've been assaulted, I couldn't live with myself if I knew there was something I could do to prevent it from happening to others and I chose to do nothing. So that kind of goes to the heart of the work that I do, the heart of the work that a lot of our volunteers do because they're largely survivors themselves or they have a close family member, I think, um, or, or friends. I think some of my favorite members of our board are the men who decided to stand up against it as well and to, to take a stand and recognize that we as a society can do better. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking how impressive that is, how quick it's grown. So just like you said, there's a real need for it. Um, Mm -hmm. and I was thinking I, I could have the statistic wrong, but I remember hearing that like one in four girls or women will be sexually abused or assaulted in their life and one in six boys or men. And yeah, so, so the current numbers, um, that were just released in the past year from the National Sexual Violence Resource Center reflect that as many as one in two women are sexually oh, assaulted wow. in their life. So in some so 50, way, yeah, fifty percent in some way, um, and that I mean that doesn't even count sexual harassment or or anything yeah. like that, right? And I I think that it's impossible that um, this doesn't touch everyone's life in some way that they don't know someone or love someone who has endured a sexual assault or if they're not one themselves. And the, the rates for men, I think are around that one in six number that, that you quoted. And it is really hard to recognize that this happens. And I, I mean, I even think that the numbers could be a lot higher than that. I think of my core friend group in college, there were five of us girls and four out of five of us had been sexually assaulted during college and um, another one, she recently reached out to me and uh, she had experienced a sexual assault now as an adult. And so that would make five out of five girls in wow. in my friend group. And um, I, I just, I am really saddened to think about how often it happens, but I am full of hope to know that there's something we can do about it. Yeah. I mean, it just feels like the education is key, yeah. really. And I think it is kind of cool that even that your professor's like, I don't know if I believe that go back because like, you know, like you've done it over and over again. It's true. Like the education can change things. So, Oh, totally. Yeah. Well, and sometimes it's funny because I'll go to legislators with these numbers and they'll be like, "Mm, we we can't really prevent half a million sexual assaults each year. And so I'll sit down and I'll just do the math in front of them (laughs) for them and just show them like, Like, actually, you you can come up with a reason why this is wrong. Like, that's great, but you're not going to be able to. So it is really strong. That is so just neat that you're able to make that, that link and, and that you're just providing it for people. I mean, I think of how much this could change. Like I tend to get kind of carried away with things and I get excited, but I'm like, this could be like monumental, you know, like really change things for people. Cause like you're saying, if you think about how many people this affects, like one in two girls and maybe higher, like you're saying, I mean, if we can just get the you know, the message out there more in the education. So I was also thinking, do you do like local speeches or like, I mean, I would love to bring my kids to one of your events or something. Yeah, that's what I was yeah we should try We should go to something together. Yeah. Um, so I have different ones coming up that, that we post about on our site and we every year hold something at whatever state capitals that we have, um, chapters in. And so that's one as well. And then also I have been brought in by different church groups to speak to them as well. So young men's or young women's groups and, and things like that. So if I, if I have an event coming up, uh, it's always posted on our Instagram page so that way people know what's going on. Okay. Yeah. Maybe I was just going to look it up, but maybe you could tell us. So what is your, um, 
it's called we will right what's the yes so the handle is at we.will.organization okay okay yeah all right i am following you so i can look up yeah i follow your um your personal account but also i'm just following that now as well and so for people listening all um tag we will in the show notes and like on the description on Instagram and everything. And then I'll also tag Brittany's personal page. And that's a lot of fun to follow as well. And it's fun to just, I mean, I feel like I've kind of got to know you through that a little bit and see some of what you're up to. So yeah, that's great. And I'll also put the website for we will as well. So yeah, great. Yeah. Okay. That's awesome. Wow. I feel educated. I I do too. I love that. Um, I'm trying to think. I, yeah, we talked about the book. We talked about what you're up to. Um, yeah. Is there anything else in your story that you'd like to touch on? Um, no, I, I think that I'm good. I feel like it's been really good conversation and I'm hopeful that the listeners have like learned something from it as well as kind of feel felt empowered to, even if they're not interested in this topic, to make a change in whatever topic they're interested in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we just talk about all the time, like if, if someone comes away from this and they teach their children or their spouse or, or their friends or whatever, it's just going to be a ripple effect of like, did you know that education helps with this? You know, yeah. okay, yeah. let's educate, you know, each other mm-hmm. on this type of thing. So, yeah. And I love hearing your personal story that's attached to it because I feel like, I mean, at least for me, that's usually what really touches me and makes me think like, oh, okay, there's, you know, people sharing their stories is usually, I think how we learn and like mm-hmm. hearing the vulnerability behind it, then I don't know. It's just, it just piques that interest in us and makes us yeah, want to learn something. Even if, even if they have totally different thoughts about this, at least they can take what you shared and what you have yeah. to say and just think about it. Yeah. You your know? personal experience and yeah, then your research. Just, and mm-hmm. Yeah. Something to think about. So, well, yeah. yeah, we really appreciate it. Um, so at the end of a interview, we'd like to wrap up with the question, how you find beauty in life after going through this transition and, you know, after starting your organization and all the different things, I mean, you're super busy. So what do you do to like slow down and find the beauty in life? I love to go on little walks with my dog. And sometimes, I mean, I might look a little crazy, but I'm just talking to him about anything in life. And maybe he's like looking back at me, like, I don't really care. or He doesn't understand, (laughs) but I think it helps to just like slow down during those walks. I also try to like breathe, do a little bit of like meditation on nature and kind of what's going on in the world around me. And to realize that despite the bad things that have happened to me or the bad things that I hear about, we do live in a really beautiful world. And seeing what other people have built as I'm walking through the city or um, hearing other people walking around, things like that, it makes me realize that I'm kind of connected to this human family and that part of what I'm doing revolves around my responsibility to them and my love for them. So I think it helps me appreciate the world a little bit more as well as appreciate my fellow men and and work harder for them as well. That's awesome. I love that. Yeah. I think that's really great. Yeah. Love what you're doing and just love. And I like the idea, like thinking the world's a good, beautiful place and that most people really are good people and want Mm-hmm. don't want to hurt people and they if they're educated then they won't yeah yeah that totally and I love how you used human family yeah that's an awesome yeah. way to think about it yeah yeah so cool all right well thank you so much that was I love that conversation yeah that was really yeah. good yeah and I can't wait to attend one of your events uh, yeah. yeah thank you so I much think, for having me yeah yeah thanks. I hope people yeah will listen to this and follow your website and donate to your yeah. cause and just you know educate each other on this because yeah, and we'll link to the page of your book too on your website yeah. so that people can Great. find that because I think that could be yeah. awesome research the cool thing about that is if people are still a little hesitant of like I don't know about sex education I don't know if I want to sit this is like such a non-threatening way that they can introduce that in their homes well and the book is available as a free pdf online so if they're like oh, cool. I don't even know that I want to buy the book you don't have to you know I don't even care if you buy it just look yeah. at it just, yeah just look so at maybe it if you want a copy in your home so yeah so print it out that's go awesome. from there yeah oh cool okay. that's, that's awesome. really great okay well thank you Brittany yes thanks to talk to you yeah, thank you guys Thank you so much for listening today. We hope you enjoyed this conversation and would love if you subscribed to the podcast and followed along as we continue hearing more inspiring stories. You can also follow us on Instagram at Beautiful Shifts Podcast, where we will post updates with our latest interviews. We'd like to thank the band We The Lion for giving us permission to use their beautiful song Move Along for our podcast. Take a minute to listen to the song and the lyrics and enjoy.
find a way to know myself All my thoughts are mine again And begin to understand where to go Now it's time to move along Now it's time to move along Take this journey as my own Feel the strength right in my bones All I want is to believe Life is my own Life is my own I'll start again, my mind is free I'll take a chance, I won't be wrong 